Welcome to OECD Podcast, where policy meets people. You're listening to our special World in Emotion series, highlighting the topics and speakers of the 2019 OECD Forum. Hello, I'm Clara Young, and I'm talking to Dame Helena Morrissey. Helena is the founder of the 30% Club, which is working toward more gender equality on boards and in senior management. Helena is the current head of personal investing at Legal and General. So hello, Helena. Gender equality is good for the economy. The OECD found that between 3 and 20% of total GDP per capita growth in Nordic countries over the past 50 years was because of more women in the labor force. The percentage varies depending on the individual country. But while more women are working now in OECD countries, there aren't enough women in powerful positions. Right now, women only make up one-third of managers in OECD countries. The 30% Club is working to change that. So, Helena, I want to begin with why 30%? Well, I had um, been leading a women's development network within my own company um, for many years, actually, and realized we weren't really getting anywhere. And I, and I came to appreciate from talking to others who were also doing uh, similar work that um, we needed some sort of targets, that we ran other aspects of our business um, or our economy with goals, um, measurable goals. So the, uh, having a target came from just realizing we need to treat this just like any other important business objective. Um, and the 30% came from reading quite widely on the subject, um, having realized that I had been doing things wrong and not you know, really getting results, however hard I tried. I did a lot of um, research into sort of how groups behave and organizational effectiveness. And a couple of things I read really struck um, me as valid. One was uh, something that Deutsche Telekom was doing at the time, which was trying to have 30% women at all levels of the company, all about improving business results. Really and so this is, and this, this is in 2010. 2008, nine, Okay, nine, yeah, when I early as that. Mm-hmm. And then, um, also, uh, organizational behavioral studies suggest that if you're in a minority 30%, as opposed to just being a token one person, then you start to get treated just like another person. And that really chimed with my own experience. I recognized that when I was the only woman in the room, which often happens even today in the financial industry, um, I kind of held back. And when I was one out of three out of 10, then I just you know, expressed my views. Um, so I realized it's not parity. But at the time, when 30% Club started in 2010, only 12.5% of FTSE company board directors were women. Uh, today it is over 30%, 31.5%. So 30% at the time seemed a long way off. <laughs> when you started out as a bond analyst in New York, how many women did you work with regularly then? Well, actually, I think I, I had a rather anomalous uh, start because in my small office where I worked, um, two of the four leaders of the office were women. Um, And so I had a completely false impression at the time that actually women, if not ran the show, then they certainly were playing an equal part. And when I came back to London after that initial experience, um, I was then the only woman in a team of 16 bond fund managers, which I learned was more a part of the course. It was more than norm. And I think there's a story too about um, that you were supposed to be, you were up for a promotion and that didn't happen. What was, what, what happened there? So I had my first 
first child, uh, relatively young for a professional woman these days, I was 25 years old. And when I came back from maternity leave, that coincided almost to the day with the time that I was eligible for the first promotion. And this was not supposed to be a big Herculean task. This was supposed to be, you know, just, you know, you weren't being a trainee anymore. And I didn't get it. And I asked my boss um, what I needed to do differently to perform better. And he said, oh, no, your performance is great. It's just there's some doubt over your commitment with the baby. Now, no one would say that today, and but I wasn't expecting it. I mean, I was completely uh, confused by that answer. It was not what I was expecting at all. And um, obviously, that has played a big part in my trying to ease the path for other women. Um, that shouldn't happen to anybody. Uh, your gender should have nothing to do with how far you should progress. Like the tech sector, the financial sector is notorious for being a boys' club. Why is that? I think one word, culture. It's incredibly difficult to break the behavioral cycle. Um, I think you're valued in the finance industry often if you are very classically sort of macho, if you take big risks, big bets, and if you work all hours, and if you act as if that's the only reason for living, really, that that's the important thing in life, getting a big job title and being paid really well. Now, I think a lot of young men today don't want that either. So this is not um, a men versus women uh, argument. I think it's the way, for, for many, many years, decades certainly, if not centuries, um, people working in finance and in some other uh, still male-dominated sectors have been sort of taught to behave, and that, that is what it's, it takes to succeed. And changing that takes a long time, and it takes more than just having a special diversity initiative. Have um, men in senior positions, um, or do you find that they're pushing for this cultural change in finance? I think at the top of companies, um, it would be very difficult, I think, today to find a CEO or somebody in sort of executive management teams at any of these big companies um, who wouldn't say that having um, a, a better, more inclusive culture was very important to them. I think the trouble is there's a big gap still between the talk and the walk. Uh, one of the hallmarks of the 30% club was that it very much has involved men. The members of the club are the chairman of businesses, and inevitably most of them are men. In fact, when we started, 99 out of the 100 FTSE chairs were men. Um, and so we needed them involved, to be involved, and actually it was, in, it was both um, exciting talking to them and hearing that they were also frustrated that they couldn't make the changes quick enough. They, talked extremely eloquently about how having women on their boards have changed the dynamic for the better, improved decision making. But obviously now we're a decade later, and although the boardroom has shifted, and is certainly has many more women in it, um, we're still not really, I don't think, seeing as much progress as we should in you know, the executive ranks, and also not really much more diversity beyond you know, there's still mostly white women, mostly women of a certain sort of educational background. It's still a very close-knit group, whereas I'm after real diversity of thought, real shake-up in the thinking. Take us into a boardroom um, and, and um, describe to us what happens when there's just one woman sitting at the table and when there's three out of ten. What's the I difference think it's that happens? It's very unnerving for a woman who's, even if she's achieved a huge amount in her career, is hugely well qualified. Um, many women tell me that they struggle to find their voice, that they feel um, that there's going to be an extra focus on everything they say, that they have to, as it were, pick their spots, 
when there's an agenda, um, a series of agenda items, they might not agree with the consensus. And that I guess there's a sense as well that there's only so much they can do to change the order of the day. So, for example, it's known that there are very many women working uh, to, um, towards better control of climate change issues. And yet, you know, putting those two together, having the women in the boardroom prioritize that issue for all sorts of companies, not just energy companies, is incredibly difficult. Now, when there are three out of 10, and um, we're just starting to see um, the impact of that. It's, it's not been long enough to really see any palpable difference. But the women themselves report anecdotally that actually now, it's not that they gang up together and form another club within the group, but actually they feel confident just to be themselves and to say what's on their minds and to speak openly. And is it markedly different from what men would be pushing for in important decisions that are being taken? Do you find? Well, this gets to the controversial topic, although in some ways it seems bizarre that it is, that you know, are there differences on average between men and women? I tend to think that there are uh, on average, somewhat, uh, we have somewhat different makeup, even if we look at our hormones. I mean, one that's been the subject of a great deal of research is obviously that men's bodies produce 10 times as much testosterone as women's do each day. And so that means that then when, you know, there's research being done actually by an ex-trader at Cambridge University, John Coates, who researched, you know, what happens when a trader places, you know, a winning bet then they get this rush and this increase in testosterone and they place even more on it. Um, and so it goes on until you can have a cataclysmic um, impact because you've just got carried away and the new hubris has, has um, come into play. And so I think all the research suggests that even just having you know, some women who might bring a different perspective, whose bodies might react differently, who therefore think slightly differently, and also you know, perhaps sometimes, although this might, I definitely don't mean to exclude all men from this definition, but often have a long-term perspective, um, are perhaps sort of biologically programmed to think about nurturing for the next generation. And that is not to say one gender is better or worse than the other, it's just I think we sort of really are trying to um, reinvent our experiences if we pretend that there's no differences. And the differences are complementary. You know, you don't want to have one or other gender dominate. The 30% club, um, interestingly, does not call for quotas. And um, I bring that up because since you founded uh, the 30% club in 2010, um, coincidentally in the UK, the percentage of women on boards went up from 13% in 2010 to 27% in 2016. And many people do attribute it to your work. Do you think the fact that it's voluntary and you don't call for quotas, is that one reason why it's successful, why you've had success? I think it, I think it has been um, an important factor. I think uh, some of it is related to how British businesses work. So some of it is a local uh, cultural issue. Um, I think for many, in many aspects of how we have corporate governance here, how companies are overseen, there's... Um, a perceived need to have it um, owned by the company themselves so they would understand their business better uh, than any outsider and also that they, um, uh, if you do something voluntarily, then you're more likely to do it you know, properly. But you're not doing a sort of tick, tick the box or check the box exercise. Um, I'm not sure that it completely applies across the world because obviously there are very different cultures and some 
countries, um, representatives have told me, um, oh, well, we need rules in this country, otherwise things won't get done. Whereas I think in Britain, it is a hallmark, um, and certainly what the chairman told me was that they welcomed the approach. They felt that they it was a hearts and minds thing, that they it wasn't threatening or militant. Um, and actually, that's quite an interesting lesson, I think, certainly for me, that there are other ways of getting things done than by being very aggressive or by demanding legislation. I also think that you know having legislation is actually, ironically, quite um, an old-fashioned sort of macho thing to do. Like you say, you won't do it, you know, because we're kind of talking about it and you agree with it, but we're going to make you do it. Quite opposite of what I'm trying to achieve in the way I live my life and conduct myself in business and at home. What's the most important thing women need to make it in the financial world? Well, I think you do need to be quite resilient and to recognize that sometimes, because it's not all solved yet, if things happen that seem offensive, well, A, you should speak up in today's Me Too era, then you'll be heard, but also not necessarily personalize it. That I think why it's absolutely important that we all speak up, as well as resolving issues for individuals, is to, again, pay it forward for the next generation. If you don't speak up, if you are sort of... Um, accepting just by your silence, then nothing really gets changed. And although I feel my referencing, even in this conversation, you know, being passed over for promotion so long ago, I feel almost embarrassed for that company because I know that it's doing much better now, but um, it's also important to flag, you know, when things go wrong, then, you know, you can do something about it. I found a better culture for my own career to flourish and um, I used it to help inform me as I try to help other women. Uh, you spoke about when you uh, were working in New York that unusually in your firm there were two women who were in senior positions there and so I assume you were had built-in mentors. How, how do mentors help in um, getting women to the top? I think it's incredibly important. I know there's a big debate about mentoring versus sponsorship, you know, when someone actively champions someone's career. But actually, I'm a fan of both. I think often women uh, and men sometimes don't have someone um, who looks out for them and can advise them in a, in a different way than your manager can or somebody that you work very closely with. The 30% Club has a huge, it's actually the biggest in the world, cross-company mentoring scheme. Um, this year is its sixth, or it's about to finish its sixth year. Um, and we have nearly two and a half thousand people on it from over a hundred organizations, including some from the public sector. And it's, it's very uh, interesting listening to both the women who've been mentored um, and to explain that it's just been giving them the opportunity to speak candidly about things that they regard as obstacles in their career that they might not have someone to talk to in their own firm. But half of our mentors each year are men. And this really, gives me great encouragement because they always say it opens our eyes as to the issues that women in my company must face but don't really tell me about. So somehow it is it's it works both for mentor and the mentee and it just means there's much more transparency around some issues that might not be worth escalating to HR or to you know make a big fuss about but actually really important over time and do chip away at women's Let's talk about the gender pay gap in finance. Uh, the statistics show that in general, on average, women are paid 15% less than men. What about in the financial sector? 
So in the financial sector, I mean, my own industry, fund management within that, um, the pay, you know, average earnings, um, hourly earnings gap, uh, depending on which measure you use exactly, but is around 30%. Uh, the bonus pay gap um, in the fund management industry is like 70%. These are very stark numbers, and they show um, just how big a disparity we still have. I mean, you could be forgiven for thinking that there are lots of women working in finance, and yes, there are a few at the top, which obviously contributes to the gender pay gap, but the scope, the scale of that problem is highlighted by this gender pay gap, pay gap data. It's obviously a very specific data published in the UK, mandatory data, and what I've noticed is it's really focused the minds of the CEOs and the management teams of companies there's now an embarrassment factor around having really bad pay gaps. And also, of course, it's obviously off-putting for young women who might consider a career um, in finance, but then look at this data and think, well, it's unlikely I'm going to be well-paid or achieve my full potential. The gender equality um, efforts, particularly in the past few years, have understandably focused on the women's side of the equation but women can't really take advantage of more career opportunities unless men are doing more at home, too. And this you know, resonates with me. My own husband is a stay-at-home dad. We have nine children, so we need someone at home. Um, but he's still very much an anomaly. Um, it's a little bit more balance between men and women now than it was you know, 20 years ago when he became a stay-at-home dad. But I know a lot of young men who want to work quite differently and I think this gives me, well, it gives me great hope that they will push the change as well. Well, thanks very much for talking to us, Helena. It's been an absolute pleasure, Claire. Thank you. And thanks for listening to OECD Podcasts. I'm Clara Young. To find out more about gender equality, read the OECD's Pursuit of Gender Equality, an Uphill Battle. To find out more about the 30% Club, go to 30percentclub.org. Thank you for listening to OECD Podcasts. For more on this topic, you can join the debate on the Forum Network at www.oecd-forum.org. To listen to more OECD Podcasts, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and soundcloud.com slash OECD.